This lengthy section of scripture about God's wrath begins in the middle of Romans chapter 1 and goes all the way through to the middle of chapter 3. And Paul is showing how the wrath of God, as the 18th verse of the first chapter said, is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Now one aspect of God's wrath is to give sinners over to their lust so that they experience the inevitable, horrible consequences of sin. That is to say, sin itself is its own punishment. People think that sin will bring them fulfillment, it's going to bring them happiness, it may feel good in the short run, but God has designed his moral laws so that if you break them as a person, you break them individually, or if a society casts them off collectively, those laws turn around and break you. The moral laws will turn around and break a society. They will break a nation. It's like the law of gravity. If you break it, you can break it. You can jump off a building, but it will break you. So before we get into what it means for God to give them over and who the them is, who Paul is talking about here, I just want us to review just very briefly the argument that Paul is making in this portion of Scripture. Paul is indicting the entire human race, the entire human race outside of Jesus Christ. No exceptions. Everyone is under God's wrath. And so in verses 24 through 32 of the first chapter that we'll be looking at this morning, God gives them over. This describes the Gentile pagan societies. The sins that are mentioned here are readily evident amongst the pagans, those who have rejected the living God. And then in chapter 2, in the first part of it, of Romans, so we'll, we'll look at this next week, Paul addresses the sins of the moralist who thinks that he or she pretty much has it all together. I'm really not such a bad person. I try to live by a certain moral code. I'm not near as bad as those pagans. You wouldn't find me committing all those sins that we just talked about there. I'm pretty good. I'm, I'm a moral person. Just look at how bad they are. But people who think they are good moral people hypocritically are quick to judge those who do not appear as good as they seem to be. And Paul will show that these kind of people are as guilty of sin as well. Then in the rest of chapter 2, Paul speaks to the Jews and those who are condemned by the law. And then in chapter 3, Paul will show that the whole world is guilty before God. For according to Romans chapter 3, verse 23, and every Iwana kid has learned this, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. God covers the sins of, Paul covers the sins of everyone here. Jew, Gentile, pagan, moralist, atheist, agnostic, philosopher, everyone, all have sinned, no exceptions, and all are under God's wrath. So this section of indictment begins with Romans chapter 1, verse 18, if you want to look at the 18th verse just for a second. It begins with, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And then if you go over to chapter 3, the 21st verse, we get the conclusion of this section of Scripture. Verse 21 of the third chapter. For now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fallen short 
of the glory of, glory of God. So our focus this morning is what it looks like when God gives people over. What does that look like? And I want to point out an important sidelight here. Because as we see what this looks like and what happens, we see what it looks like when God gives a nation, when God gives a society over to its sin. We see what a society, what a nation looks like when it's abandoned by God. Abandoned by God. When I started preaching in the last century, and that won't surprise the kids, <laughs> might surprise some of you who are as old as I am, started preaching in the last century, I grew up in a completely different world than what we live in today. And all you guys, older people, are shaking your heads. In those days, we talked about being a Christian nation, a moral nation for the most part, that was losing its way. A Christian nation, a society that needed to once again turn to God, to return to the biblical foundation on which this nation was established and its moral roots and its moral underpinnings. That's all change. As a nation, we don't fit in that category anymore. As a nation, we've gone a long ways down from the 1950s and 60s when I grew up. And some, some would say that because of certain fragrant sins, America is on the brink of judgment. The Apostle Paul would say, no, America is already under God's judgment. Already under God's wrath. When a society flaunts and gives hearty approval to certain sins, even applauding them as right, it shows that God has already given that society over to impurity. God has already given that society over to degrading passions, and God has already given that society over to a depraved mind. Paul shows us that wherever pagans are to be found, pagan sins will be found also. And Paul's point in Romans chapter 1, verses 24 to 32 is this. When people reject God and exchange the glory for the worship of the creature, he gives them over to their sins and the horrible consequences. So first of all, we see that God gave them over to the lust of their hearts to impurity. This is in verse 24 of the first chapter of Romans. Verse 24. Therefore, God gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. And then we see a fourth, F-O-R, beginning at verse 25. This tells us the why, why God gave them over. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. This verse basically repeats the truth that we saw in verse 21. Because people did not honor God or give him thanks, their foolish hearts were darkened. Their foolishness led them to exchange the glory of the incorruptible God for idols. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie. The truth of God reveals to the truth as God has revealed it. As God has revealed the truth about himself and the truth about all things. That is the truth of God. God revealed himself. He's revealed the truth about all things. In other words, God is not a projection of our ideas or a figment of our imagination. God is. God exists in and of himself, and he has always existed outside of time long before, if we can put that in time, he spoke the universe into existence. 
As we saw in Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 20 a couple of weeks ago, God reveals himself generally in two different ways. He reveals himself through his wrath against sin. And then as Scott mentioned this morning, he reveals himself through, through creation. God has made it evident to everyone. God has made it evident to them. As, as Scott mentioned, how can you look at an eclipse... And I don't remember all the numbers, but, you know, there's something that's 400 times bigger than something else, and there's something that's 400 times farther away than something else. <laughs> and I don't remember all of that, but I remember when we were out at the Morleys, and I was looking out over the valley and watching things get darker and just enjoying that, looking out over the valley. After two cataract surgeries, I wasn't going to trust anything put over my eyes to look at the sun. But uh, one of the kids finally got it. So I'm filming this, you know, even though they'd been said, you're going to see the moon move in front of the sun. One of the kids yelled out, what's that thing in front of the sun? <laughs> yeah. And we finally, finally got it. How, how can you even think about an eclipse and not see God's hand all over it? But sinful men exchanged the truth of God for literally, it says, the lie, the lie. The lie refers to idolatry in all its forms. They exchange the truth of God for the worship of something else. They exchange the truth of God for a lie. The lie is that we can worship things created by God other than worshiping God himself. We can worship things that are created by God, all of which are mere creatures, not the creator. And so that even makes the worship of self idolatry, doesn't it? Because we're worshiping a creature or the worship of any other human being. In Paul's day, they worshiped Nero, the emperor, as a god. Go figure, but they did. It's still worshiping a human being or worshiping ourselves is still idolatry. In essence, it's the lie that any creature can live independently of God as self-sufficient, self-directing, and self-fulfilling. They exchange the majesty of God for images made by their own hands. So, says Romans chapter 1, verse 24, God gave them over to sexual impurity. He gave them over to the lust of their hearts. Now the verb used here for God giving them over has a certain judicial quality to it. It's the idea that God allows sin to run its course as an act of judgment. God's wrath here is not the... the outpouring of his divine displeasure as he did with Sodom and Gomorrah when he took them out as he did in the flood of, of Noah's day or in the book of Revelation where God is pouring out his wrath pouring out his wrath that's the active pouring out the wrath of God but here in the book of Romans God's wrath is the removal of God's gracious restraint it's a miracle he lets anybody do anything but here he removes his restraint and lets them do whatever they want. And that's his wrath being poured out. He allows sinners to reap of the just fruits and full fruits of their rebellion. F. Godet writes that God ceased to hold the boat as it was dragged by the current of the river. You know, the Greeks had a saying. They looked around to see what was going on in their world. And this is one of my favorite sayings, even though it was Greek. The Greeks said, those whom the gods judge, they first make stupid. And if you don't believe there's some insight to that, look at Washington, D.C. today. Moral degradation is the correspondence or the consequences of God's wrath. It's not the reason for it. Sin inevitably creates its own penalty. 
A person is punished by the very thing by which he sins. That's what the psalmist declared in the the 81st Psalm. God said, but my people did not listen to my voice. Israel did not obey me. Uh, So I gave them over to the stubbornness of their hearts to walk in their own devices. As a result of exchanging the glory of God for idols and exchanging the truth of God for the lie, God gave these sinners over to the lust of their hearts so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. You know, the Bible is clear that the human heart is fatally inclined towards evil. For out of the heart, Jesus said, come what? Evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, slanders. These are the things which defile the man. Jeremiah proclaimed the same basic truth in verse 9 of the 17th verse. The heart is more deceitful than anything else and is desperately wicked. It's significant that God gives sinners over so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. That their bodies would be dishonored by the consequence of their sin. John MacArthur commented on this. He wrote, No society in history has given more attention to caring for the human body than the modern Western world. Yet no society has caused more degradation of the body. The human life is exalted for its own sake, The more the human life is exalted for its own sake, the more it is debased. In tragic irony, the same society that glorifies the body has no regard for the body. Same society that exalts man incessantly degrades him. The world echoes with demands for people's rights. Yet books, movies, and television often portray brutality and murder as all but normal. And sexual promiscuity and perversion are constantly glamorized. And then Paul says, God has given them over to degrading passions. Verse 26 of Romans chapter 1. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions, for their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. In the same way also, the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another. Men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. God's anger against sin leads him to withdraw from the sinner who willfully continues in such wickedness. You know, in the ancient world, even in ancient Greek and Roman traditions, there's a long history of seeing these degrading passions as unnatural. Even the Romans and the Greeks who tolerated these degrading passions to some extent saw such behavior as unnatural or counter to the way that they would say the gods originally created and intended things to be. I came across a quote by, from Plato, the great Greek philosopher. He wrote this over 2,400 years ago. And he uses terminology that's very similar to the Apostle Paul's here. And Plato wrote, Whether such matters are to be regarded jestingly or seriously, I think that the pleasure is to be deemed natural, which arises out of the intercourse between men and women. But that the intercourse of men with men or of women with women, Plato says, is contrary to nature. And that bold attempt was originally due to unbridled lust. Also, Paul and Plato would agree on something important right here. And then God gave them over to a depraved mind. Verse 28 of Romans chapter 1. 
And just they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper. For the third time in five verses, Paul wrote that when God's people disregard God's revelation in nature and the revelation of himself, he gives them over to the normal consequences that follow. In this time, the consequence is a depraved mind. The word depraved means not standing the test. Uh, we've looked at the positive side of this word because it's, the positive side is dokimos. This is the word adokimos, which means it's the opposite of dokimos. Remember, dokimos means to be approved. Uh, when they would refine precious metals in those days and they'd boil them or whatever they would do and then they would scrape the, the dross and the scum off the top and you had pure precious metal, that was dokimos and they would stamp it dokimos. As, as believers in Jesus Christ, we are the dokimos, approved of Jesus Christ. This is the word, it's translated depraved, but it's the word adokimos. When they would get the metal together and they'd look at it and it's rejected because of impurities. It's a docomos. They didn't even stamp it. They just threw it away. It was worthless. It's useless. In relation to God, the rejecting mind becomes the rejected mind. Did you hear that? The rejecting mind becomes the rejected mind. They're become, thereby becomes spiritually depraved, worthless, and, and useless. Of unbelievers in Jeremiah's day, he wrote in chapter 6, verse 30, they call them rejected silver because the Lord has rejected them. They're useless. They're worthless. In other words, the mind that finds God worthless becomes worthless itself. It's debauched. It's deceived. It's deserving only of God's wrath. According to Job chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, the depraved mind says to the Lord, the depraved mind says this, Depart from us. We do not even desire the knowledge of your ways. Who is the Almighty that we should serve Him? And what would we gain if we entreat Him? And what kind of sins does this depraved, worthless mind commit? Paul anticipates the question and gives a long list at the beginning of verse 29. They're, they're pretty self-explanatory. Verse 29, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossip, slanders, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedience to parents. Kids always look up when I read that part. Without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. Now, Paul is not saying that this is a complete list of sins or, or that everyone who has a depraved mind is going to commit all of these sins or participate in the same level of all of these sins. But these are sins that everyone who rejects God is capable in their heart of committing. You might have had the, heard the theological phrase, the total depravity of man. If you ever studied Calvinism and the tulip, the five points of Calvinism, uh, it's the first point. Total depravity of man is tea and tulip. We're not going to get into that, but the the, the scriptural idea is that man is totally depraved. There's nothing within himself that does not go towards these kinds of things. Now, the total depravity of man does not mean that a man or woman can be as bad as they can be. But it does mean they're as bad off as they can be because of their depra depravity. Having rejected God and having been given over by God, there's absolutely no barrier, no restraint between them and the culpability and the capability of these sins. 
All restraints are off. Now Ben Witherington recounts a gripping story that was told by the great theologian Karl Barth. The story is about a man who was walking one winter night in his own region of Switzerland, who was confronted suddenly with a blinding snowstorm. In the storm, he loses his way and wanders in uncharted directions. When the storm subsides, he looks behind him and discovers to his shock and horror that he'd walked across an only partially frozen lake of ice. From his place on safety on shore, he gives thanks to God for the mercy on his foolish behavior. He should not have willfully wandered around in the blizzard, but simply stopped where he was when he began. And here's how Ben Witherington applies the story. He says, For a fallen person, given up on one's own desire, given up to one's own desires, and refusing to acknowledge God and his claim on one's life, life is much like what happened to the man in Bart's story. One wanders around without being able to see the potential consequences of one's actions, never realizing one is teetering on the brink of disaster by such wandering. Paul's description of fallen existence here, especially a fallen existence of Gentiles, comports well with Bart's story. It speaks well to the fact that for fallen creatures, the image of God in which they have been created can be an unbearable likeness which they repeatedly try to efface by trying to erase the memory of God and to distort God's likeness in them by means of sinful beliefs and behaviors. So verse 32, And although they knew the ordinance of God that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. Verse 32 is the concluding summary of human perversity that Paul's been describing. And first of all, Paul says, First, they know. They know. Yet Paul again begins with the knowledge possessed by the people he is depicting. It's not now the truth of God that they know. We talked about that. But now they know God's righteous decree. Namely, that those who do such things are deserving of death. And he will later write, the wages of sin is death. And they know it. Their conscience condemned them. If you watched the movie during Sunday school last week, The Atheist Delusion, you notice that this was the basic premise, the beginning point that Ray Comfort used, where with gentleness and respect, he leads atheists to Jesus Christ. Deep in their hearts, each one of these people knew that there was a God, because God had put it there. And they knew deep in their hearts, that they had been living to suppress the truth and unrighteousness, and that they stood guilty as sinners before God, and they were doomed to death if they did not receive Jesus Christ. And secondly, Paul writes in verse 32, they nevertheless disregard the knowledge. They not only continue to do these things which they know deserve death, but which is worse, they actively encourage others to do the same. Heartily. They give hearty approval to those who, who practice them. So they flagrantly approve the evil behavior which God has expressed as dis disreproval. A society that openly condones and defends such evils as sexual promiscuity, homosexuality, and the rest has reached the deepest, deepest level 
of corruption. John MacArthur uses this illustration. A certain species of ants in Africa builds its nest in deep subterranean tunnels where its young and its queen live. Although they may be great distances from the nest foraging for food, the worker ants of that species are able to sense when the queen is being harmed, and they become extremely nervous and uncoordinated. If she is killed, they become frantic and rush around until they die. What better illustration could be there be a fallen man? Even in a sinful rejection and rebellion, he cannot function properly apart from God, and he is destined for death. Paul's teaching in Romans chapter 1 about why society degenerates into unrestrained, debauched, destructive evil is unlike any analysis you're going to hear today, or you would read today, or you'd see on cable news today. One of the reasons for this is when a society is sinking into moral decay, and ours is, one of the traits of that decay is the inability to see what has happened. They just can't see it. They, they don't know that. The social mind becomes so defective in the moral decadence that it doesn't even have the categories to talk about it or the framework to recognize evil for what it is. When I was in college, I took a sociology class called Social Problems. I had to take at least one sociology class, so I think two. So I took Introduction to Sociology and, and uh, Social Problems class where we, we talked about crime, drug abuse, war, sexual violence, uh, delinquency, all those kind of things. But all we did was talk about the problems. No solutions were offered. And when we talked about the problem of drug abuse, we were required to write a paper called Why I Use Drugs. Why I Use Drugs. I called my paper and wrote it, Why I Get High on Jesus. I was a Jesus freak in those days. That's what they called us in the Circle K house. My roommate and I, Tom Bond, we were the Jesus freaks. You know, posters talking about Jesus all the time. Oh, get out of here, you guys. Well, I got an F on the paper. And uh, so Tom and I went in and talked to the instructor, and he said, well, you guys didn't fulfill the requirements of the paper. I said, but I don't use drugs. How can I write a paper on why I use drugs? And he says, but you really know you want to, and you would if you really had the opportunity to do so. And he stuck to the F. We live in a day when we don't even have the categories or the framework to recognize evil. They're just problems that people are trying to solve. The inability to render sound moral judgments is evident almost everywhere you look in our country. And this is what makes Paul's letter to the Romans the relevant and needed text for our day. When I began this message, I asked if there was any hope. Is there any hope for reversal from being given over by God, abandoned by God to suffer the consequences of sin, of moral decay, of depraved mind, of degradation? How do we battle back against destructive evils in our own lives and in the lives of our culture and, and society? Well, we've come to the right book, Paul's letter to the Romans. God had abandoned, God has given over. How is that reversed? How is that reversed? When a ship is headed for disaster, what does the captain say? Remember that? Reverse engines. And then he'll say star or port or whatever that is. You know, which is just opposite, like backing a, a trailer. You know, you got to go opposite. So when you reverse engine, you got to turn thing the other direction. And so we need to know what that direction is. How we reverse engines? 
And I want to close by looking at three great reversals that John Piper has pointed out in the book of Romans. Three great reversals. He says we need the reversal of God's wrath against our unrighteousness. We need the reversal of God's handing us over to a depraved mind. And we need the reversal of our mind's moral decay so that it can be renewed for right and proper use in God's servant. First of all, we need the reversal of God's wrath against all unrighteousness. We find this in Romans chapter 1, the 17th verse. The 17th verse of the first chapter. The key verse in the whole book and the key verse for the reversal of God's wrath against all unrighteousness. Verse 17, talking about the gospel. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Verse 17, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. In other words, the righteousness that God demands from us, he freely gives to us. In Christ, he gives us the righteousness that he demands. We've talked about that, the, the great exchange. When, when Jesus died on the cross, all of our iniquity was laid on him. Every sin, everything that God was mad at, angry at, was laid on Christ, on the cross. And then when we receive Christ, the Bible says all his righteousness is put on us. If we will turn back to God and trust him to be our greatest good, he will be our righteousness. Turning back to him is called repentance, if you wondered what that is. Trusting Christ to save us from God's wrath is called faith. Faith. And if you have the righteousness of God, you're not under the wrath of God anymore. You're not under the wrath of God in Christ. As one person said, that's a very happy reversal. That is happy. Going towards danger, going towards the iceberg, whatever we want to call it, and all of a sudden, we're safe. How many people have we seen this weekend interviewed on the news? I'm just happy to be alive, to be saved. Secondly, we need the reversal of God's handing us over to a depraved mind. We find this great reversal in the sixth chapter of Romans, the 17th verse. Romans chapter 6, verse 17. This is the key verse for the reversal of God's handing us over to a depraved mind. Verse 17 of the sixth verse. But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of searching or teaching, cataract surgery, that form of teaching to which you were committed. This is the exact reversal of God handing people over in Romans chapter 1, verse 28, where a person is given over to a depraved mind to do those things which are wrong. Instead of being a slave to sin, he says, the sin that is false and is dirty, the reversal is to a form of teaching that is holy and true. And notice that it is God who does it. Paul says, thanks be to God. Thanks be to God that you became obedient to this teaching because he did it. In Christ, God now in Christ gives us over to truth and righteousness as much as before he gave us over to sin. And lastly, the reversal of our mind's moral decay. We find this reversal in Romans chapter 12, verse 2. Very familiar verse. I was telling the Sunday school class this morning that I spent over a year at Dallas Seminary in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. 
I think I've spent my whole life in Romans chapter 12, verse 2. That very familiar verse. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. When God has given us his righteousness by faith in Jesus Christ, and when he has handed us over to the teaching of truth and, and holiness and has helped us become obedient to it, then little by little we are transformed by the renewing of our minds. No more depraved mind. They're new. And we become more and more conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. Our thinking is more and more conformed to the mind of Christ. And the long list of sins that we read in Romans chapter 1 becomes shorter, it becomes weaker, it loses its hold on our lives, all to the glory of God. This is the key to life. This is the message that we most need to take to our neighborhoods, to our nations. This is our only hope. This is our community's only hope. This is our nation's only hope. And does our nation need a great reversal? <laughs> Each one of us need to receive these three reversals from the hand of God by faith. The reversal of God's wrath through the gift of God's righteousness in Christ. Receive him for the forgiveness of our sins. The reversal of being handed over to depravity through being handed over to truth. And the reversal of a depraved mind through the transformation of the renewing of our minds as we become more and more conformed to the image of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Shall we pray? Our Heavenly Father, we've been through some tough stuff today, and I, I pray is that I've talked about it, that I've handled it properly and with propriety, Lord, but at the same time, I pray and ask that your Holy Spirit would be convicting in these matters. That we would be able to see and know and understand the gift that you have given us in salvation in Jesus Christ. That when we receive him for the forgiveness of our sins and trust totally in him, Father, that we are released, we are reversed from all of these things that we've been talking about this morning. And even, Lord, when we do sin, as we all do, Father, that we have a great high priest, our Lord Jesus Christ, who makes intercession before the Father. Father, we just, we just can't thank you enough for our Savior, Jesus Christ. And Father, that is the message, that is the gospel that we need to get out into our community and into our world, into our nation, Father. We just thank you for Jesus. And we do it in his name. Amen.